Welcome to The Vine, a plant media project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Vensel. The Vine is an insightful look into the world of plant medicine, exploring the changing landscape around cannabis and psychedelics and ending the stigma through educational discussions. The Vine podcast does not offer medical advice nor condone any use of illegal substances. Consult your physician or therapist before making changes to your wellness plan and before trying alternative healing medicines. Today, we welcome Rachel Clark, drug educator and reform advocate who serves as the Programs and Communication Coordinator for Dance Safe, a 501c3 public health organization promoting health and safety within the nightlife and electronic music community. Founded in San Francisco Bay Area in 1998, Dance Safe quickly grew into a national organization with chapters in cities across North America. In 2014, Rachel joined DanceSafe as a volunteer until progressing from an intern to a contractor to a staff member between 2018 and 2020. She's been providing community harm reduction services since early high school, acting as a drug-related crisis hotline, offering drug checking services, and providing psychedelic support. Rachel even founded Oberlin College's Students for Sustainable Drug Policy chapter in spring 2019. She is dedicated to expanding public understanding of the intersectionality of the war on drugs, particularly as it pertains to racial and social justice. And that is why we are so excited to have Rachel from DanceSafe on The Vine. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Yes, welcome, Rachel. It was so impressive to learn that you've been involved in this harm uh, reduction since early high school. So hoping that you can tell us what brought you to it, how you became involved with providing psychedelic support to others. So frankly, in early high school, I discovered Arrowhead actually, I think when I was 12 or 13. And I would spend hours and hours just going through all of the experience vaults and sucking up all the information I could. And I was having a pretty rough go of it when I was in middle school, early high school. So I stumbled across these articles about LSD and I was like, oh, well, that'll fix everything. And from there, I just became really interested in drugs. I was like, wow, this is really like, I am fascinated by these things. And in high school, I knew people that wanted to do drugs. I knew people that claimed that they were selling them. Um, I wanted to kind of get a glimpse into the back end of things. And I started really getting involved in harm reduction because um, during that time, I was just noticing my friends getting ripped off and being sold what was obviously bunk or just completely not at all what they'd wanted. So I became something of a, an advisor to my friends and to my peers. Um, although frankly, I think that I was mostly the one that was driving the conversation. I was like, we should, we should talk about this. And everyone was like, why we smoke weed once a month. And I was like, no, we should, we should talk about this. (laughs) So that was how I started getting kind of ravenous about it. I was in some circles that were, um, pretty heavy, regular consumers of all kinds of substances, you know, um, in this field, it really takes one to know one. Like you, you need to have familiarity directly with the drugs you're talking about. Otherwise, your ability to relate to the people that are doing them is super limited. So uh, I discovered Dance Safe, I think in 2013, actually. I came across their website, didn't get an answer from them. And I was like, I'm 16. I want to go to festivals and <laughs> test drugs. And I, I don't know if anyone even read the email, but if they did, they were probably like, hmm, maybe later. <laughs> And then when I was 17, I was uh, raving in the underground community in Southern California and started hanging out around the Dance Safe booth from LA Dance Safe and 
kind of like sliding into volunteer unofficially. And then I met Kristen Karras, Dance Saves Director of Operations and an absolute baller at Lightning in a Bottle 2016. And then from there we were in touch and I just kind of slid in and was like, hey, do you guys need some help? And this was back before our communications were getting responded to regularly. It was a whole overhaul. So that's kind of the progression that it took. But I mean, it, you really like dove in. I mean, you knew yeah. that this was something that you wanted and you were a young person and you saw that and you really worked your way up. I mean, Dance Safe is not a massive organization in terms of how many people work for it on a national level. So the fact that you were able to work your way up to actually be a member of the staff just shows your tenacity and your ability to say, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to help people. And so I just really wanted to ask the question, you know, to you about, you know, what, what does harm reduction mean to you? And like, why is set and setting and integration so important? Well, the way that I kind of internalize drug use is that I have started kind of envisioning it as an ecosystem, an individual as being an ecosystem with that ecosystem kind of extending spherically around them. It includes the environment that they're in, but it is not to sound trite, right? But it's, it really is the entire person. Like every single building block that has led a person to become who they are is going to directly influence how drugs impact them. And that is just like, it is a fact. It is unequivocal. It is nature and nurture. It is a thing that we know about all circumstances. It's the same reason why one person might jump at fireworks and one person might not. And that is to me, a core tenet of harm reduction is recognizing that it is inherently an act of investing in knowing others and investing in recognizing the ways that others have been put at risk and how others are being denied resources in one way or another, and going into those root causes and talking about them and addressing them. So harm reduction can be symptomatic. You know, you give someone a syringe, that's a symptomatic application of harm reduction, or it can be more core oriented. So you bring conversations about systemic racism into the mix, because obviously people's drug use and the way that people are viewed for their drug use is going to be inherently formed by the systems that encapsulate them. So my view of harm reduction really has changed from being more superficial about these are the materials, these are the educational facts, to being like, here are really the reasons why some people have problems with cocaine and some people don't. You know, those all are important pieces to put together. So um, when you say having that reaction to fireworks, it, it makes me laugh because I can't stand the the loud bang. Mm -hmm. So it's good to know that other, there are others out there that <laughs> think it's just fine. Oh, um, so many on both sides. I, mm -hmm. So I'm also thinking, I, I want to ask you about the drug testing kit and um, sort of what's included and how one uses it. But just going back to something you said first about how people are so different and they are all of the components of their nurture nature. But when you're in a harm reduction situation, you know, perhaps you're seeing somebody for the first time and you don't know all of that background. So um, it'd be interesting. How does one handle that? Like, how do you teach others when you don't know and you see someone in trouble and, and you don't have the background. Mm. I think that does really depend on specifically what's happening. 
for Got instance, it. if you see a person who is overdosing, that one is pretty cut and dry. You recognize signs of overdose. You make sure that you are informed about signs of overdose, uh, including the fact that people with darker skin will have a gray tint and not a blue tint to their extremities. That's just being informed um, on a more general scale. But that one is like, okay, it's an overdose. You know, administer Narcan, call 911, say you're with someone that's unconscious. When the paramedics arrive, you tell them, I think this person overdosed. Try not to bring cops onto the scene. So that's one thing. But when it comes to like specifically engaging with people from different backgrounds who are currently altered, who are currently using drugs, I think it really does depend on like the situation specifically at hand. Are you talking to them about whether their use is problematic or um, how they're doing their drugs, where they're getting their drugs, whether they have a good relationship with their drugs? That specific set of questions is really like it, it is difficult, obviously, to come by visually, but you can also pick up some context clues from that person. Um, did that answer your question? Yeah. Yes. Um, it, it's just uh, much more complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. So what is the um, drug testing kit and, and what is included in the kit and how does one actually use it? Whew, this is a big question. I'm going to try and keep this short. Okay. <laughs> okay. You should hear me and the founder of Dance Safe will stay on the phone for four or five hours at a time just bickering about the semantics on our pamphlets about drug checking because <laughs> it's, it's more complicated than people realize. The, the gist of it is that there are different reagents and reagent a reagent is a chemical and some of them are sulfuric acid based. Some are, are based in other stuff. Our most recent one has cobalt in it. And if you use a single drop of one reagent on top of a little tiny pile of your drug, the size of a pen tip, you can observe a color change and be like, okay, so this color change, we look at the dance safe chart that's included with the kit and see what drugs turn that color with this reagent. But unfortunately, it's almost never enough to use a single reagent because For instance, a marquee reagent will turn black in the presence of MDMA, MDA, MDE, 5-MAPB, 5-APB, 6-MAPB, 6-APB, and other stuff that is, uh, there's one, I think maybe even DXM actually turns black with marquee, but don't quote me on that. So you have that one data point, but you also have to remember that on our chart, we can't account for all of the novel psychoactive substances that are on the market. So you have a general idea, like reasonably, generally speaking, if something reacts according to the chart across the board, you've used multiple reagents, they match the different sets of colors, then if it's something like MDMA and it all matches up and you have like a rock, then frankly, you know, chances are you have something that is predominantly MDMA. But we always want to leave that wiggle room for, okay, do we know everything? And we don't, we can't. So cocaine, for instance, so hard to test. We're still working on figuring out ways to identify why cocaine turns seemingly random colors with random stuff. So the idea behind our kits really is that use as many reagents as you can to get as many data points as possible. And each drop of each reagent should go on a separate pile. The only time you should ever drop liquid on top of other liquid is if there's an A and a B inside of the bottle. So 
Once you've observed all of those color changes, you look at the chart we give you, you look across the chart for that drug, see if all the colors match, and if all the colors don't match, there's something else going on there. We don't know what it is. Maybe it was washed with something. Maybe it wasn't washed enough. Maybe there's a precursor used to make it that reacts. Maybe it's cut with an inactive filler, an active filler, some other drug. We don't know. You cannot tell without lab testing. There's no way. So the whole idea behind at-home reagent kit testing is that you want to kind of see if what you have reacts in an unexpected way. If it reacts as expected, you could be like, okay, this looks like it probably contains this drug. If it doesn't react as expected, you can say, okay, I'm not sure what I'm dealing with, or it looks like it contains this, which is not what I bought. So that's the basics of it. Tried to keep it short. Thank you. Well, we definitely just keep hearing about, you know, the Dan Safe drug kit. So this is something that the testing kits are there, but I appreciate you taking the time to explain that it's not necessarily this 100% accurate, you press one thing, you put one dot. I'm like, I think there were some misconceptions that yeah. you still have to understand that, that there, it, it may not, it's not a perfected system, but at least allows you to see if what you were thinking that you were about to consume is what it says it is or is yeah. what it is, right? And on site at festivals, I've tested plenty of press pills that contained cathinones predominantly and did not react at all like MDMA. I've ten- tested plenty of pills that were just methamphetamine and probably, like if I had to guess, also contained uh, caffeine. I've tested plenty of stuff that didn't react as expected. And it's like, if you, if you test 10 times and one of those 10 times it doesn't come as expected everyone's like bro like oh god like come look at this and it really changes the way that you look at your baggie because everyone is sure everyone's plug is the best plug everyone's buddy gets the most fire shit it's always the same spiel so when we test it like the guy that pulled out a massive <laughs> bag of amphetamine and he was like Oh, it's it's cocaine. Like I know that it's coke, and we tested it, and it was he he'd just been sold. Yeah, <laughs> I know. He bought like a kilo of it, and I was like, mm. "Oh my god! Wow! Yeah. Wow!" Um, so taking it from testing it, okay. So let's say now someone you know has tested their product. They they decide that they're going to consume. Mm-hmm. Do you have any recommendations or insights um, into some dosing mechanics that you could potentially offer up to our listeners? So my number one resource for dosing is psychonautwiki.org. I love that website. It is uh, still like a, it's a pure created source as with most things that are reliable around drugs, honestly. But that one has an excellent set of drop-down menus for different ROAs, routes of administration, Um, and within those different specific dosages that are recommended. Now, my recommendation is very much to always start on the lightest side of things. So for instance, if I, if I was talking to someone who wanted to take Adderall for the first time, I would say split it into quarters, take 2.5 milligrams, and you might not feel that. But then from there, you can kind of work your way up by 25% each time approximately until you hit a sweet spot. So something that people don't really know with like, let's say LSD is everyone assumes that their tabs have a hundred micrograms on them, but frankly, most do not. Most have significantly lower than that. 
So when someone actually does 100 mics of LSD, they're like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm tripping balls right now. This, uh, I'm a tank. It's never happened before. I can take three tabs to the dome. And it's like you were taking 150 mics at that point. So the potency of various batches is going to vary pretty significantly unless you know the chemist or you specifically used volumetric dosing. But every drug has its own different um, set of dosing properties. And some of them are really sensitive, like 2CB, one milligram can make a huge difference. Um, psilocybin mushrooms, every single flush of mushrooms that is harvested will have a different concentration of psilocybin. So three grams of mushrooms one day might be pretty light and you can handle it. And another day you might be sent to the cheese world or whatever your <laughs> trip theme is. Like a hero dose, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I've, and just to be clear, there is not like a contingency with the, with the cheese world with mushrooms that definitely was off the top of the lid. But uh, it's really important to recognize that batches vary. And even something like Coke or particularly something like Coke since it's so easy to bulk, it's a white powder, you can cut anything you want into cocaine. So one bump of Coke from one bag could have a significantly higher concentration than from another. So you really have to dose based on batch. And for every new batch, you really need to dose your lowest dose. Like you're just barely threshold dose to see how it hits you. So go low and slow. I really right. mean it. I really, really <laughs> mean it. That's good advice. I've watched, That's really good advice. Yeah, I've watched people in the same party dig into two separate bags of ketamine, like one time in one and then the other time in the other. And the first bump that they did, they were like, oh, I must have a tolerance. Uh, they go to the other bag and they're hold for like an hour. So yeah, really just you don't want to miss the night or the day or That's the day right. after. Can you imagine a better you? Empathic Health is a global community providing support so you can find more fun, freedom, and connection in your life. Empathic Health is my integration solution for incorporating my healing work into my daily routine. Empathic Health has given me a space to use my voice to express my thoughts and be myself in a safe place. I'm excited to get to the type of work that gives my life more clarity and joy. Helping others has done nothing but help me in return. Know your medicine, know yourself. Join Elizabeth, myself, and the rest of the community today at empathic.health. So um, we've read that Dance Safe started the only publicly accessible laboratory analysis program for MDMA actually in North America. And so just wondering if you can tell us about drugsdata.org and how it works and since we're on the topic of MDMA, um, you know, does Dan Safe now? I think I read that you have testing for fentanyl because mm -hmm. is fentanyl just being pumped into every drug to sort of, um, you know, just bump up what the amount is, or is that a misnomer? So I'll, I'll start with fentanyl and then I'll move to drugs data. With fentanyl, it's active in potentially lethal quantities the size of like a few grains of sand. So is that right? Yes. I didn't know that. It's one mm. to two milligrams is um yeah, one to two milligrams. Everybody should hear this. Is a potentially <laughs> fatal dose. 
So that's really, mm. really tiny. Mm. It's supposed to be dosed in micrograms. It's supposed to be volumetrically dosed intravenously or intramuscularly or via a patch. Um, so there's absolutely no base to the idea that fentanyl is a bulking agent. There's no point. If if anything, the current predominant theory is that fentanyl is a contaminant. And it. my theory, and this is just a personal theory from watching trends, is that the reason that fentanyl appears more in some drugs than others via what appears to be contamination, because who is going to do a line of coke and nod out and be like, oh, that's some fire coke. That's the opposite of what you would want. You would want a significantly more euphoric and stimulating effect, not for someone to be nodding on opioids. So the theory generally is that it's a cross-contamination issue from surfaces and from packaging tools and gloves, whatever facilities are not washing between uses, etc. And most fentanyl, to my current knowledge, is produced in two particular countries. And before I say what they are, I want to be very clear that it, it is a, a slippery slope to start noting which countries are producing which substances that are generally hated by the American public, because that is a super fast track to xenophobia. Mm -hmm. um, I'll be very clear in saying that the reason that we have such an influx of fentanyl and other substances is because we want them and because we've criminalized them. That's the reason. It's us. It is not other countries who are capitalizing on that. We exploit other countries every single day in far more insidious ways. So... Uh, China and Mexico are two of the most predominant illicit fentanyl manufacturers as per my current understanding, which is subject to change. Everything is always changing. I could be wrong about this. But knowing that, that could definitely inform the kinds of substances that are more or less likely to be cross-packaged in those same facilities if they come from those two countries. So specifically cocaine is heavily imported through South America, obviously, because most coca is produced in South America. Um, in the case of cutting fentanyl into dope, that is intentional. That is a replacement of the heroin market because fentanyl is so much cheaper and so much smaller and easier to fly under the radar. So you have a bag of Benadryl and you drop just a tiny little bit of fentanyl in there and you have down. Um, so that makes sense from an economic perspective. And if you look at the market trends, you'll see that most heroin, most drugs sold as heroin just contain fentanyl and increasingly xylazine, um, other novel opioids, sometimes diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl. So I could go off on that. I will stop myself. <laughs> no, it's so I'm I'm so glad you took the time to explain that though. Sure. All right, but thank you. Yeah. So the fent strips, we do sell fentanyl test strips. They are actually urinalysis test strips. So any fent strip that you buy is technically supposed to be used to pee test someone. So we're kind of flipping the script on that. I do not know which harm reduction initiative started that, but they were genius. And you have to follow instructions for dilution as exactly as you can. And this allows room for the fact that not everyone has the resources or the ability to fully dissolve their baggie, which is what you need to do to properly test for fentanyl 
comprehensively. It's in a few grains of sand dispersed in a bag of a gram. There's no, you can't identify it by sensory information. And if you just scrape a little bit out, you could just miss it. That's called the chocolate chip cookie effect. So to really test for fentanyl, you really have to dissolve the whole bag in water, but you have to dilute it properly because otherwise the strips will not be able to detect any fentanyl in there. You have to read the instructions about the ratio of teaspoons to milligrams. It's different from amphetamines than it is for Coke. And it's not as simple as I wish it were. So my rule of thumb is Follow our instructions as closely as you are capable of doing. And if you are unable to dissolve the whole bag or if you don't dilute properly, you do run a risk of false positives or negatives, but do what you can. And if you are not fully properly diluting your baggie, you need to read your results with a grain of salt and be aware of the fact that you could have missed information. So I, I just yeah. want to chime in that I appreciate the fentanyl explanation, and it's not a bulking agent because two young people uh, have died in the past year, and one I thought was cocaine, and so I just assumed, you know, it must have been cut with fentanyl. Um, the other, I don't know, but it was some sort of opioid overdose. But I appreciate you saying it, it's not just randomly put into bulk. Yeah. Yeah. And with especially in something like cocaine, if it's supposed to be an uplifting thing, you're saying that fentanyl is literally the opposite of that. I mean, it's going to, it's going to make you have that. So that, that does, that does make sense. But the whole grain of sand, that's a really good way to kind of, you know, put it in perspective of how much cautious, you know, you have to be through that testing process to ensure that, you know, there's going to be room for error. Um, not everyone is a scientist. We're just trying to do our best here. If we're testing it ourselves, just be, you know, willing to acknowledge that there's some error there. And like, just even having this conversation with you, Rachel, it's just like crazy. Cause you know, I remember going to raves in the nineties <laughs> and like wishing that something like this existed in my hometown, <laughs> you know? And now I'm proud to say that some of my friends from the psychedelic club of Pittsburgh that run our local dance safe chapter are volunteering uh, this weekend at a festival. And they were talking about how there is a course that you can take to become a volunteer so that you can go to these events. And so I was wondering, you know, how can our listeners, how can I learn about, you know, taking this process? What's this training process like so that others that are listening that may want to be involved in Dance Safe um, can join the movement? Definitely. Um, the first step is always going to be completing our volunteer training. If you just type in Dance Safe volunteer training, there's a teachable course that will come up. And you complete the course, make sure you submit the form at the end. People miss that sometimes and they're like, I ah. so always make sure you submit that form. And then I will actually be on the other end of the line saying, hello, <laughs> welcome to Nansafe. And I'll send you some paperwork, just some quick stuff. And then from there, you will be connected to a local chapter via email. But a couple quick things. It is important to note First of all, we are not establishing new chapters at this time. So if there isn't already leadership in your area, we are a very small team that has 100,000 constituents split not evenly between us in terms of direct interfacing. And our chapters are volunteer run. So there's a lot of strain that's placed on chapter officers who are trying to deal with like a massive influx of volunteers 
it's a lot of elbow grease to make this stuff happen, both from a volunteer and a paid standpoint. Our volunteers are absolutely a thousand percent the reason that DanceSafe exists, like that they are DanceSafe on the ground. So the training course, definitely the best first place to go. And then from there, you'll get connected. And if there isn't a chapter in your area and you still want to do the training, you can do that. You can indicate interest in starting a chapter or being informed if there's one that pops up near you when we have the capacity to facilitate in the future. Or you can just complete the roster for a different chapter that's further away from you and be on their mailing list. And either way, you'll get emails from us if there are national events, so events that we're overseeing as national directly. Um, Like there are a couple that are coming up that are pretty major festivals that we're doing. And we are overseeing them at nationals. So we sent out emails to all our volunteers saying, hey, opportunity for this big thing. But doing local work is the best. You meet so many people. Got it. So basically, um, you need to contact national if there's not uh, a chapter in the area and um, put in a request if you want to start a local chapter or find a near a chapter near you. But it sounds like maybe even the training would be, you know, good for anyone. Yes. Right. To just yes. be able to. to yeah, because even if there's not are. a chapter in your community, I mean, if you go to to festivals quite often and travel around to go to them, could right. you work with one of the local chapters there if you've already done the training? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you just need, need to get in contact with them. And to clarify, you don't need to contact National directly. Once you've done the training, I will be in touch and I will have a one-on-one conversation with you about where you need to be planted, basically. Got it. Oh, yeah. great. Okay. That is really, really great. And you know, so um, really wanted to, to dive into, um, we're really curious about your, your thoughts, you know, just drug use context and how this idea relates to drugs outside of psychedelics. You know, we are called Mm. plant media project. You know, we always have this conversation about plant medicines versus psychedelics versus higher medicines. What do we call them? You know, um, so really just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that. Um, I think that I, I like just calling every drug a drug personally. That's, I really like taking ownership, uh, you know, I'm a person that uses drugs. I, I'm part of the community that I serve and I'm a really big fan of calling them drugs. And I think that that is definitely kind of like a reclamation process as well. Um, but there are a few things to keep in mind in terms of talking about like plant medicine, for instance, right? Which is where's the cocaine, cocaine, where's the coca, where's the opium. Methamphetamine can be derived from ephedra, the plant. Cathinone is derived from cot, the plant. There's the betel nut in Africa. Um, There are plant medicines globally that are not ever wrapped into conversations about decriminalizing or legalizing plant medicines in the United States. And I think that there's also kind of a dangerous distinction that is drawn between all these come from the earth and these are synthetic. So these are safer and these are less safe. And you look at Datura, Datura and scopolamine, they're toxins, they're deliriant toxins and they grow from the planet. And then you have LSD, which is like non-toxic and people have taken thousands of hits of LSD and they've been probably pretty behaviorally scrambled for a minute while they recovered. But I've known people who have literally regressed to a primate-like state and forgotten how to read for six months after doing too much acid. 
And now they're great, <laughs> living their best life and leading organizations. And so it really, truly, it, it actually, I think, authentically saddens me that all of these substances are so exiled from these conversations. But I also understand from a social perspective why it happens, why we have these really deeply ingrained ideas about what is and is not a good drug. And we see people that are harmed by certain substances. And it is intentionally impossible to get information about fact versus fiction when we try and figure out why they're being harmed. So that brings in drug use as context. You see someone, for instance, who is sitting on a park bench, nodding out. And the initial reaction and response by a lot of people would be to call that person a junkie and probably walk past them. And the next response would probably be, okay, this person appears like they're unhoused. um, And that is probably because they're a junkie. It literally feels like, like, glass in my mouth saying that word. It's funny. I've really conditioned it. Um, But because it's not my word to say, I don't identify as a junkie. So it's not my word to apply to anyone unless they request it of me. But that person's entire history led to that point. Something that I say sometimes about um, the concept of addiction is I don't use the word addiction anymore. I use rewarding and reinforcing. And the reason behind this is that those are the two components that determine whether use is going to be compulsive. And those two components are separate from dependence. Dependence is when your body learns to function in the presence of a drug and it doesn't function correctly without it. So opioid withdrawal is a sign of dependence, but you may or may not have that compulsive mental preoccupation with it outside of wanting to stop the withdrawal. So it's this compulsive acquisition behavior, this compulsive rumination behavior that is a product of reward and reinforcement. And an example of how this might happen is if someone is uh, chronically lethargic and is depressed or has difficulty mustering the energy to do things or has social anxiety, any of those things, then something like amphetamine, snorting amphetamine, might be more rewarding to them than someone who feels like baseline socially comfortable and has a lot of energy already. And it it doesn't necessarily always work that way linearly, obviously, but that is a potential risk factor for a drug being more rewarding to one person than another. And then you add reinforcement in there. So if a thing is rewarding, it feels good to do it. If it's reinforcing, it makes you want to do it again. So let's say that this person decides that amphetamine is not quite what they're looking for. They want to try methamphetamine because it lasts longer and they have similar profiles. It lasts longer, but with meth, you can smoke it. um, And the rush is significantly more intense when you smoke meth than when you snort Adderall because of the route of administration. So let's say that this person goes and they smoke meth. Then the reinforcement window is now open wider because the crash from smoking, the up and down is going to be probably significantly harsher than from snorting a lower quantity of a shorter acting substance. So it becomes more enticing to repeatedly do it because the peaks and troughs are getting more drastic. 
And those peaks and troughs vary depending on the person and why they like that drug and what it means to them. Like if you're having panic attacks and you're traumatized by your family situation, then maybe benzos are going to be that rewarding thing for you. So all of this stuff adds up. The culture that a person is raised in, the context in which they talk about drugs, the route of administration that they use their drugs in, that's one of the biggest ones. Whether their drugs are sourced from a pharmaceutical grade company or if they're pulled from the back of Eli's sedan in the cul-de-sac. And all of that directly determines whether a person is at risk for certain things from a substance. So it's, you know, there are baseline things that you know about drugs. Like, oh, this drug has a tendency to do this. This drug activates this receptor, which can lead to that. There's baseline pharmacology. Drugs have baseline risk levels. This is unequivocally the case. But the certain contextual factors that are different from person to person will determine how visible that risk is and how palpable that risk is for that specific person. So there's a reason that some people have had sudden cardiac arrest from doing a bunch of cocaine in a night and other people just are absolute tanks for coke and nothing happens. And it's because of context. It's because there's variability. So we're on a mission to share information and education around cannabis and psychedelics. And you are such an, I mean, an unbelievable resource. Thank and you. um, you've taught me a lot here today. Um, so it takes a lot of time to vet through online info, you know, what's where, and you gave us a great resource earlier and just wanted to see if you have some other favorite resources um, for exploring medicines, drugs. <laughs> yeah, I have actually a whole list on my class website, I believe. Um, it's drugsexco.weebly.com. It basically, it's spelled like drugsexco.weebly.com. Uh, ah. And it was an accident, but this my students pointed out to me, and I thought it was hilarious, so it's just stayed that way. <laughs> and on the resources tab, there's tons, like so many websites you can go to. Um, off the top of my head, I'll circle back to Drugs Data now and say that Drugs Data is a platform where anyone can submit a sample for either $100 or $150, depending on what kind of sample you're sending in. And they will do full GCMS mass spectrometry evaluation of what you have. So they can't tell you how much you have and they can't tell you any inactive adulterants by DEA licensure, but they can tell you all of the active ingredients and their ratios to each other. Great resource. I scour it because it tells you the trends across the country and it's really useful. Although you have to keep in mind that the people that know that drugs data exists and have $100 to spare to throw their drugs at it represent a very small subset of people that use drugs. So always take it with a grain of salt. Never trust a pill press just because it's on drugs data. People just copy the press in color because everyone loves orange Teslas and white lightnings and whatever. So there's that just for trends in terms of info. I mean like psychonaut wiki and Arrowhead, you just, you, they're just the best, you know, they're wonderful. Arrowhead I prefer for its experience vaults because the information sections might be a little outdated in some areas. Psychonaut Wiki is pretty up to date. I also really like the Subjective Effects Index website. And that's a website that gives descriptions of subjective effects for drugs to help people put their experiences into words and feel related to. I really like that, that website. 
There is a Discord channel called Psychedelic Social Justice Discord channel. <laughs> I think it's probably actually called something different. Um, and those are the, the main ones that I recommend to people. But for, oh, and of course, the Drug Policy Alliance, the DPA, they are my go-to for all things policy. If I'm ever unsure about a stance, about a bill, a DPA, I love them like a lot. That is so awesome. And we need to make sure that the listeners know how to connect with Dance Safe online um, so that they can possibly, you know, buy their testing kit or get more edu- education. And also, if, if anyone wants to connect with you, how they could find you as well. Sure. Um, you can connect with me through any Dance Safe socials, or you can email me, rachel at dancesafe.org, if you have questions. Um, just keep in mind that we do get flooded with questions about very, very specific things from people all day. Like, what will I, what happens if I mix cat food with benzos? (laughs) So uh, like my brother's cousin's sister ate a tab of acid seven years ago and I don't know anything about it and he didn't have a good time. What happened? And so we do our best. I, well, I say we, but I answer all of your messages. So I do my best to give you what I've got. I'm not a medical professional. I'm not a legal expert. I'm just a big ass nerd. So that's how you can get in touch with me. Um, I don't have a, an individual platform that you can follow. So Dance Safe is definitely the way to go for that. And it's dancesafe.org. Yeah, dancesafe.org. And you yes. can find us on, on Instagram at dancesafe underscore um on facebook like.dancesafe is our url i believe and then on twitter i have no idea what our twitter handle is <laughs> you can find dance safe online and we want to thank rachel for joining us today you have provided us with so much education and your time is so greatly appreciated and thank you for working with all of these chapters across the country and wrangling all these awesome volunteers that are you know using their time at these events to help others. And so really just kind of putting that compassionate care in the forefront and knowing that we want to build community and be there for one another, no matter what drug anyone may choose to be on, going through that harm reduction training and and volunteer training is something I definitely want to do because I think it's going to be really important for anyone to learn that's really interested um, in, you know, how we can help others in this movement. So again, we just want to thank you so much for your time today and hope we'll be able to talk with you again sometime soon. Yes. Thank you guys so much for having me. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in for another episode of The Vine, a Plant Media Project podcast. Thank you for joining us on today's show and tune in to get your podcasts and never miss an episode. For cannabis and psychedelic news, visit us online at plantmediaproject.com. Together, we can end the stigma around plant medicine. Mm-hmm.